Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? Well, I am a bit raspy, but mostly recovered. We are a bit late because we've both been sick. Yes. And we didn't need anybody listening to us honking snot and um, (laughs) coughing. Hacking up our lungs. Like two (laughs) dying Victorian orphans. Or or just trying to form coherent thoughts when our brains have been turned to soup by lack of sleep. Well, that was not my problem. My problem was I was just like, maybe I could sleep for 17 to 18 hours a day. <laughs> See, the, yeah, my problem was that I was not sleeping at all because maybe I was going to cough soon. <laughs> but now we're, I would say, 80% recovered. So yeah. we can talk about matriarchies. Yeah, which is perfect timing because I finally saw Barbie last night and it is a beautiful matriarchy. Uh, excellent. I've not seen it, so no one is allowed to talk about it. That is fair. Yeah, we, it doesn't exist yet until I've seen it. That's the rules. <laughs> but yeah, so introducing ourselves. So I'm Emma Southern. I am Janina Matthewson. And we are History is Sexy. And if you would like to support us, you can do everything at historyissexy.com. Yeah. Or just like tell your friends. Tell your friends. I guess leave reviews. I've never looked at the reviews on the basis that I think that reviews are not for me. <laughs> no, I think reviews are the only point of a review is if you get lots of good ones, then you're more likely to like beat the algorithm and be suggested. Yeah. People send us messages to say that we like them and I like every single one of those. So you can send us a message and say you like we love us. love compliments. And three pounds if you'd buy us a coffee. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's who we are. I found out yesterday when I was on the radio that if sometimes if you Google us with a safe search on, then we get restricted, which I think is fun. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a, a female history podcast being restricted by safe search is the patriarchy, which is very yeah. appropriate for what we're talking about today. It is. So today we are answering... A question that came from two people, one from Katya and one from S.K. Kesson, and they have both asked about the history of matriarchal societies. So mm. what's the deal with matriarchal societies in history? And they're going to be thrilled and delighted to know that the answer is complicated. <laughs> That's our tagline. And it involves a lot of 19th century theory and a man having dreams about the Romans. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're Western Central, there are like matriarchal indigenous societies, but they got colonized. Yes. Because the colonizers were all patriarchies. Yes. And I am going to talk about those at the end because I think that it's interesting. And there is this whole thing of modern matriarchal studies, which is Mm. the thing in and of itself that I'm kind of fascinated by and is invented by one woman basically and she has got a lot of books and I read a couple of them and yeah she is very interested in those societies. (laughs) I think we should start by talking about how patriarchy develops because when you look at how it develops it, it feels like an aberration but it's also like it makes it clear why patriarchy is dominant even though it feels like something going wrong. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. First, I'm going to kind of define patriarchy mm-hmm. because, which is surprisingly hard to do for a word that's used a lot. It's used a lot in various different contexts, but at its core, mostly it is what's called a hierarchy, which is a system based on oppression. Mm-hmm. And it is 
a now used as a term to mean a system in which men oppress and dominate women and men are afforded a social power and authority that women in general are not allowed. Mm -hmm. It comes from a term from anthropology, which literally just meant the production of culture and society around a father, like a mate, mm -hmm. that the household and society was centered on a father. And then it kind of came through 20th century feminist philosophy and Marxism to mean to be associated with these ideas of oppression and domination. And it is slippery, but the term matriarchy, it turns out, is also very, very slippery. <laughs> and the ideas of where patriarchy came from and whether it was preceded by a matriarchy are kind of the root of everything to do with talking about matriarchies yeah um, because the idea of the prehistoric golden age matriarchy or the prehistoric barbaric matriarchy depending on your perspective is a very very recent one mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so 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 funny how often that happens yeah yeah but the kind of first person to propose the idea was in 1861 with my new friend Johann Jacob Backhoven mm -hmm. who is a Swiss legal historian who lived in Basel whose particular interest was Roman law that's beautiful. And this he is... wrote a lot of stuff about Roman law. And then one day he had a series of what he called visionary experiences. And... Uh-huh. <laughs> about the Roman yeah. world. Uh-huh. Which gave him what he called insights into truths beyond the physical. So, in other words, he had some dreams. Uh-huh. And was like, well, this is a greater truth than any evidence could show, so it must be really true. Yes. Right. right yes, it right. is. It's amazing how much of, like, our <laughs> understanding of the world comes from men just deciding something. Having a dream, yes. Yeah. And it, this led him to exploring myth, particularly Greek and Roman myth, as a key to understanding prehistoric and pre-writing societies in Europe. Mm-hmm. He believed that myth was a manifestation of primordial thinking and therefore a highly reliable historical source. Mm -hmm. And he introduced this idea of comparative mythology where you collect myths from lots of different societies and cultures and times and then compare them and then find where they overlap, basically. Right. It involves a lot of symbolic interpretation of like seeing this as representing a female goddess and that also represents a female goddess and this represents the moon and that represents the moon regardless of whether they are actually the moon it's just a circular thing right okay yeah <laughs> so yeah. It, but mm -hmm. there's a so there's a lot of subjective analysis going on yeah a lot of projection going projection. on yes yeah, so we're going <laughs> to use that word a lot <laughs> and it basically believed that you could overlap myths and that you can see where they are where they have things in common and in fairness like sometimes you totally can like lots and lots of cultures have flood myths for example yeah yeah i had i heard that in a sermon one time as evidence for god yeah 
the flood the flood really happened because there are many different myths about it across cultures yeah and but there are the other way is to assume that floods happen quite a lot or that it's talking about maybe it's going back to kind of the melting of the last ice age or maybe it is like there's four thousand different ways of interpreting that but they're interpreting interpreting that (laughs) but there are for everything to his credit, God bless him, he came to believe that understanding the status of women in human society was very important, which put him quite far away from virtually everyone else he ever spoke to. Mm-hmm. It's just always a nice, a nice to just see someone who is going to say something different, even if it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> and what he ended up producing, he produced a couple of books, but his most famous one is 1861's De Mutterecht. Mm-hmm. An investigation of the religious and judicial character of matriarchy in the ancient world, which I am not saying in German. <laughs> das Mutterrecht. Eine Untersuchung über die Gynäkokratie der alten Welt nach ihrer religiösen und rechtlichen Natur. Which basically produced this theory, which is a very, it's an interesting theory in a number of ways, very influential in its own way. The most interesting thing about it is that he argues that the root of all cultural development for humans, so the evolution of human culture, is not based on the discovery of new technologies, which is what kind of the predominant argument is, like when you discover Mm. the spear that moves you forward, when you discover how to dig yeah. a hole and plant a seed and you invent the wheel when you discover yeah. fire all of those but was in fact to do with kind of ongoing religious and cultural conflicts between men and women and the status between the two and the importance of specific gods mm-hmm. and he proposed a four-stage evolution for all human culture first stage is what he calls heterism, mm-hmm. which is when all humans are nomadic, sexually free and promiscuous, communistic, um, and worship mother goddesses. And you can see in the myths and the kind of iconography of this period, lots of fertility, lots of vegetation, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. This is where if he had known about them, which he didn't because they hadn't been discovered yet, because the first one wasn't <laughs> discovered until 1864, he would have popped in those the Venus figurines. Sure. But so that's what that's been talked about. At this point, everybody has everything in common. There can be no paternity because all there's no kind of set relationships. So children belong to the mother. Everybody is wandering. Everybody is free and happy. Mm-hmm. He considers this to be barbarism. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. Sage two is the important one for this podcast, which is the gynocracy. Mm-hmm. He never officially uses the word matriarchy. It's used in translation, but it's not one that he uses. He says gynocracy. Sure. Which is the agricultural phase of human evolution. It's associated with the moon. So in mm-hmm. goddesses, you have like a version of Demeter because he's only really knows Greek goddesses and is only willing to use Greek goddesses because <laughs> <laughs> virtually everything comes from Greek mythology. Here we have female deities still, but we have matrilineal inheritance and the institution of marriage, which, and this is where he's really radical and then everybody kind of overwrote his version of this. He believes that marriage was instituted by women to control men in order to prevent them from being promiscuous and putting too much burden on the female body. Uh, uh, okay. Okay. So okay. too much promiscuity of men means that women get pregnant too often, means that the too much 
stress on the female body. So he believes that matrimony and monogamy were invented by women to prevent men from being promiscuous. That is so illogical. Because if you're, if you are, if you are, if the in this situation, if the man is promiscuous, that means all the procreation is like divided among multiple women. Whereas if you're making him stay at home and only fuck you, then you are doing all of the children yeah. on your own. But this, I mean, this is why that part of the theory did not really last uh, <laughs> and was immediately replaced. But that's his theory. And his, this is a phase which is dominated by imagery in art and myth of fruitfulness and agriculture and cornucopia mm-hmm. um, and moon goddesses. So lots of moon goddesses. He also considers this to be a period, and this is something that we will come back to over and over again, of a kind of animalistic period of the body being close to earth. So Mm -hmm. he has very strong ideas about women being more animalistic, more inherently nurturing and caring, and more inherently kind of closer to the earth. This is like super colonialist, imperialist thinking, right? Because we invented houses, that means that we are superior to people who still live in you know, tents or huts or things. Yeah, and also like inherently patriarchal because the idea that women are non... Because the next phase is basically the rise of patriarchy where women overthrow the gynocracy and respond by eradicating the memory of gynocracy and in like response to the horrors of the gynocracy that they inherited or that they had to live under, they oppress women very, very hard so they can never have any power ever again. Mm. But more importantly, this is the period during which intellect and what he calls the spirit emerge. So he considers the patriarchy to be very inherently the period of abstract thought of action outside of the home, so of war and philosophy and of proper art. So rather (laughs) than just animalistic, close to the earth, ooey-gooey, nurturing soft, it's very Apollonian, he calls it, where we have entered the sun phase and we are talking about the age of the spirit and not the age of the body, the age of intellect and not the age of animalism. Right. So he considers that to be actually very, very good, which is also sets him very much apart from everybody else who comes after him, (laughs) which is that he considers patriarchy to be good and that it should be very strongly upheld. And he explicitly says that he is writing in response to the French, who he thinks are backsliding into (laughs) these ideas of matriarchy and barbarism. So it is, uh, he's arguing against a specific modernity of the 1860s and some specific French philosophers. Because he just believes that women are inherently (laughs) anti-intellectual. Yes, he thinks they're inherently anti-intellectual. He thinks that they are inherently healing and nurturing, but also more emotional and more moral. And he's very invested in these ideas. And he uses lots of Greek myth to back this up. So the Orestia is a big one mm-hmm. with the killing of, of Clytemnestra by Orestes, yeah. the various stories of the defeat of the Amazons by Theseus and then by Achilles. If you have ever read Margaret Atwood's The Penelopead, have you ever read it? Uh, I haven't, no. Wouldn't recommend it, to be honest. Well, I have read The Odyssey and I think that's fine. <laughs> 
the Odyssey ends with the 12 enslaved handmaidens who have been consorting with the, the suitors. suitors in Odysseus's mm-hmm. house being executed. Right, yes. And in that, most recently popularised by Margaret Atwood, but also this comes from Backhoven and the like, is the idea that the 12 handmaidens represent the 12 phases of the moon and mm-hmm. that this is a representation a symbolic representation of the overthrow of the lunar goddesses by the patriarch. Right, who is a sun god. Exactly. And that Mm. is the kind of thing that we see in this form of mythological... What, what ends up being called mytho-archaeology is... <laughs> That's a great term. It is quite a nice term to say, I have to say. It's vague. Yeah. I don't like it, but... <laughs> it just feels so shady, you know? <laughs> But that's basically what we're looking at. So, like, that's the kind of symbolism that we're looking at. There's 12 women and they are they are executed by a man for their sexual behaviour. So that is a representation of the patriarchy overthrowing the original primordial. And that is what we're seeing in the Odyssey, not a literal representation of women being executed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh-huh. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> And that is a foundation of basically all thought about prehistoric matriarchies is that book. Okay, yeah, sure. Great Uh, foundation, lads. (laughs) What makes it more popular, partly there is in the 1880s, so 20 years later, somebody manages to slog through it because it's written in a nightmare prose. (laughs) Nobody really pays that much attention at the beginning because it's nightmarish. But Two people read it. One is Henry Lewis Morgan, who is the inventor of anthropology and who invented the process by which uh, what he considers societies to evolve. So the theory of cultural evolution is that you start with savagery, then -hmm. you have barbarism, and then you have civilization. So (laughs) stage one, savagery, everybody's having sex with each other. Stage two, barbarism, women have some power. Stage three, civilization, women are in their proper place. Right, in the kitchen. Yes, Um, which is fun to know because then when you read like 18th and early 19th century novels and people are calling each other savages or calling other culture savages, they are very specifically saying that you're at the first stage of cultural evolution. Mm. Like you haven't even reached barbarism yet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's that's such a great insult. You're not even a barbarian. <laughs> you don't yeah. even qualify to be called don't a even, barbarian. I mean, it's great, except that they're always saying it about people in Africa. Of course they are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who they... And there is this idea, which we will come back to when we talk about how people talk about indigenous cultures now, which is that the culture that you can see or that people were seeing in the 18th century when they turned up in Africa and South America as anthropologists and started writing things down that what they saw was some kind of pure culture that had not changed in a million years. Yeah. And could not have evolved in any way until it came in contact with us. Yeah, like the difference is a million years ago, we were all in the same position, but Europeans developed and um, other nations did not. Yes. Well, not nations. They weren't nations at that point, but, you know, other uh, groups of people. Exactly. But what really takes this into the mainstream is Frederick Engels. Mm Mm-hmm who likes the theory but doesn't like his ideas. What is the difference between a theory and an idea? Well, so he likes the the process theory, like Uh that we started with matriarchies and moved through to patriarchy, but he thinks that the idea that women invented marriage is stupid. Oh, yeah. 
If women were inventing marriage, they would want wives, not husbands. <laughs> that seems fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, he argues that it is private property which causes the creation of marriage. Mm-hmm. We have an early stage in which there is promiscuity, um, but promiscuity means that um, men cannot prove paternity. Right. So if you have a patrilineal succession system, then suddenly the need to prove your own paternity becomes existential. Exactly. And when you have private property, the idea that you need like to pass that on is very important. But in, when you are in a system where you can't prove paternity, then only women can be held in high regard because women are the only parents. You just have women who are mothers and then just men lurking about. And stuff can only be passed on from mothers to children. Um, in order to combat this and in order to be able to hold on to their property and um, to prove paternity, men institute marriage and monogamy in order to own a single woman, in order to have a paternal line of inheritance and in order yeah. to be held in the say in, in the regard of parents. Which then also the incentive is you have to control your wife. You can't just own her. You have to be sure she's not going out behind your back with other men. Yes. And then that leads to all the systems of control that build the patriarchy, like denying women education, denying women the right to move in public areas freely, denying women the right to their own wealth and financial freedom. All of the things that women have chafed against are out of a fear that men will accidentally will their grand fortunes to the man who the, the children of the man who cuckolded him rather than his own yeah. children. Which is, you still see it, like, on Reddit. I'm consistently fascinated by the men who are terrified that their children are not their children. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea that they might be raising someone else's child and or that it is perfectly okay if they discover that they are not the biological father of the child that they have raised for 15 years to cut yeah. that child off. Yeah, this person they've formed a bond with is no longer relevant because they found out that they're not genetically connected. Yeah. Yeah, which is just not something that matters in a matrilineal no. system. And Engels likes that way more. So he is the one who turns this into much less of a, of a kind of terror, which is a, a barbarism, which is what it is for lots of male anthropologists through the lens of Marxism. He turns it into an ideal Mm-hmm. And in his his argument is that marriage is the first oppression of capitalism. Yeah, and that to overthrow that is the you know the first stage of overthrowing capitalism. So he has all of those kind of very now classic arguments about marriage being a form of prostitution and women being the first victims of capitalism and that kind yeah. of thing. Which does make it's just it just does make a lot more sense. You have one system of succession that promotes egalitarian society and one that promotes oppression. And we just like because the people who were doing the oppression had the power to choose, they chose to continue oppressing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it. He is helped along with the popularization of this idea by the fact that in 1864, the first of the Venus statues is found. She's found in France, in southwestern France, and she is called by the person who found her, and I absolutely love this name, Venus Impudique, Immodest Venus. Yes. Because she has... 
She is a classic Venus statue in that she is kind of very kind of soft and round and has lots of curves, but mostly she has a vulva. <gasps> that is pretty immodest. So she is not one that you would necessarily recognize because she is not anywhere near as soft and round as, for example, the Venus of Willendorf. Mm. Or like the really exaggerated ones. I'm going to send you a picture. We will also put these in our show notes. We will. Uh, and we have an website. Instagram now. So we I will do. also put all of these on the Instagram. So this is her. Oh, wow. She's a bit phallic. She's quite phallic. She looks a bit like a, a Barbie doll, but she has a what she has is a little slit between her legs, which is very clearly a vulva. Yeah. And this apparently blew people's minds. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, that is profoundly immodest. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So the fact that she has a vulva, but the idea of what appear to be some kind of votive or, or very, very ancient figurines of women mm-hmm. who have very, very womanly figures yeah like the venus of willendorf who is everybody's favorite i think yeah she's cute she is but there's lots of ones like that that have very, have enormous breasts have stomachs have thighs mm-hmm. have big butts yeah and then you get lots of ones which are more abstract but which do have these ideas like what you can tell that they're a Venus or they're called Venuses because they have a button boobs, basically. <laughs> so I'm sending you uh, the Venus figurines of Petersfelds, which I thought was a whistle when I first it saw it. It does look like a whistle. Doesn't it look like a whistle or a snail? Is that just her thick butt? I think that's her butt, yes. Great. And then there are the Venus figurines of Gunnarsfort. Uh-huh. Which I will also send you. There they are. Uh, Gunnarsdorf, sorry, not Gunnarsfort. Which are the exact opposite in that they look like you could stab someone with them. <laughs> oh. I mean, they've, they've also got back. They do but... have butt. Yeah. And they are. these ones are made of antler. Weirdly enough, the ones that are more... Ab- I say weirdly enough, it's not weird, it's... Makes perfect sense. But the more abstract ones, like the Petersfell and the Gunnersdorf, are mm. the newest ones or the most recent ones. So the very oldest ones are, are about 35,000 years old. Yeah. And the most recent ones, like the Petersfell whistles, are about 11,000 years old. Okay. And they all come, apart from a big collection which were found in Russia... They all come from Europe, mostly from Central Europe. So France, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Austria, that kind of area. Mm -hmm. And then a bunch from Russia, which is fun. There are, I had to bloody add this up for maths because I couldn't (laughs) find anywhere that would just tell me how many there were. So I had to go through the Wikipedia and add them up. There are, I think, 95 by my edition uh-huh. 95 of these have been found with these Venus figurines, which look very kind of different, but are all clearly very carefully, very lovingly, with a huge amount of like skill and artistic uh, yeah. ability, figures of women um, yeah. and women that are sexy ladies. Yeah, women who have them things. 
And they're women, yeah, and naked women, like not women clothed, not women doing things, not women as, you know, priestesses yeah. or whatever, but just ladies. But like specifically showing a reverence for yeah, the, the female body. Although I will tell you something that I found deeply upsetting, <laughs> to be honest, when I was kind of trying to look up to see what had been written about them was when you I started searching through databases tons of medical journals written in the past few years like the past 10 years which are like obesity in the neolithic venus statues jesus like what the (laughs) what the fuck is wrong fuck off 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 go outside nerd and talking about body mass index It's important to always remember that standards on appearance are linked intrinsically to wealth. Having It used to be fashionable to be a bit plump because that meant that you had leisure time to sit around and you could afford to eat rich foods. Now, being thin and buff and fit means that you have the amount of money and time to spend at the gym and to buy food that is like holistic and you know eat a lot of quinoa and yeah and make yourself $30 smoothies in your $200 you know smoothie machine like that's why it's considered desirable is because it is an indicator of wealth yeah and the same with like almost everything like tanning used to be very fashionable to be very pale and to hide from the sun because it demonstrated that you didn't have to be outside to work but inside now being tan is a symbol of health and wealth because it is a symbol that you can go on holidays yeah and lie on the beach yeah and don't Um, have to be indoors in an office working all the time yeah yes no uh so a surprising amount of stuff by doctors that should know better yep but emphatically do not one was from the lancet (laughs) i mean the lancet published the original anti-vax study that was absolute garbage so like you have to always take everything with like like just look at the just don't trust scientists, basically. Don't, like, there's a there's a reason you wait for things to be roundly peer-reviewed, which I know is not a perfect system because it's voluntary and whatever, but, like, <laughs> just, just, like, look at the if the study is actually robust and useful because they're not always. No, they are not. And, yeah, so these start appearing at the exact same time that people are talking about this concept of matriarchal pre-Olithic society. And look very much like yeah evidence now we have evidence that there were women who were venerated in mm. pre-patriarchal societies which is i would say the most that you can say about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with any definitive statement the most you can say is that in prehistory in the neolithic and paleolithic periods of european history because obviously most of these are only interested in european history women were venerated and then people start to attach their own specific biases on it. So is this a symbol of fertility? Is this mm. a symbol of attractiveness? Is this a symbol, like, what are we... Uh, one that I really like is the 1996 theory by Leroy McDermott that they might be female self-portraits. Oh, I like that. Because when you look down at your own body, what you mostly see is big boobs, 
because yeah. they always look bigger when you're looking down. Don't know why I'm touching my own boobs. Um, but you see like, your little belly. Yeah, and you, you see, see your belly. Your you see your hips. You see your thighs. Yeah. Um, and if you look back, then you see your butt. The best argument against that I have found is that people could look in ponds of water to see that they had faces and could therefore draw themselves from looking in ponds of water, which I don't think is a great argument. I don't think it is because it also is like, yeah, yes, you you could, but like, are, are you habitually? Like your, yeah. your natural view of yourself is created by what you see most of the time. And if you have to go to water and look into it, like still reflective water, which is not as common. Like it's, it, the weather has to be right, you know. <laughs> there has yeah. to be, you know, it's just not going to have as big an impression on you as seeing your face does today. When there are just mirrors in your house all of the time, and you look in your face, and like you you look at yourself for the two minutes you spend brushing your teeth every morning and every night, you know. Yeah, it's, it's going. You're going to have a different relationship to the way you look in this sort of situation, I think. Yeah. I Yeah. The lack of faces is the thing that, to, like, this is entirely my personal thinking about it, which is that even though if I was going to do a self-portrait of myself, I am still aware that I have a face. Yeah. yeah. And I can see other people's faces. So I'm not like, oh, everybody else has this weird face thing, but I don't. <laughs> Me, I'm just a kind of a headless thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah which suggests to me that they'll probably have some kind of like more generic rather than being a specific woman that yeah they are more generic than that but but they do very much kind of feed into this idea that there there was a veneration of, of women beyond that was somehow divine the reason that they're considered that like that they're thought to be Religious objects is one because uh, archaeologists think that everything is religious. <laughs> if they found it, it must be religious because uh, why would it exist if it wasn't? And this must be a ritual object is like it's a joke in archaeological circles that if you found it, you don't know what it is. Ritual object. <laughs> it couldn't possibly be just like a toy no. that someone carved for their child. And the f- clear care and attention and time that has been spent on it yeah, like in the thinking of anthropology and archaeology and lots of things is that you would only in a subsistence society or just generally in most societies, you would only put this much effort into something if it had a religious meaning. I don't think that tracks at all. I don't think so either, but that is the underlying. Anew. No, I just want to like we have this view of the past that everything was harder and more work than it is now and that is based on our image of like the most extreme days like even looking back at a sort of pre-industrialized society and agricultural labor you see these arguments that like we have it so much easier now because we just have to work eight hours Mm -hmm. in an office five days a week and they were, were like laboring in the fields all day, every day under the hot sun, when the truth is the hard work is like contained to small patches of the year yeah. when you are like planting and harvesting. And then there's a lot of chill time and there are huge feast days all the time when no one does any work. And when you go back before agricultural and you're like, what I have to do today is like someone, someone maybe goes off hunting and they bring back a carcass. You live off that for like a week. So you have to just 
cook and gather what you need for that day. It doesn't take a whole day to feed yourself, even if you are gathering from the ground. So I, yeah. people had a lot more leisure time, I think, and than also, we do now. As we can tell from like the very earliest, earliest cave paintings, the earliest, earliest art is that humans are artistic. Yeah. And there is a great book. I don't know if you've read uh, Rebecca Ragsykes' Kindred about um, Neanderthals. I haven't, no. It is brilliant. But something that she makes very clear in that, and her next book, which she's writing at the moment, is actually about women, female, like female Neanderthals, specifically female culture. So when that comes out, it will be brilliant. But that Neanderthal culture has art. They have, yeah. they decorate things. They have objects which are clearly just made for the pleasure of looking at them, which are decorated with beading, with, with you know, which don't have any, any significance beyond being pretty. Yeah. And that, and that is a kind of fundamental part of human and also Neanderthal yeah. existence I, that we make art. I think there is a great drive in human nature to fuck around with something that is essentially silly. And I think it is one of the most beautiful things about being human. Yeah. Like there's this guy on TikTok who makes these incredible, the digital, like CGI, but really intricate musical Rube Goldbergs, which is just yeah. like, there's just a ball that Bouncing. is bouncing around the wall playing the theme to Zelda. And it's like, there is no purpose for this and it takes such a long time and all it does is make you feel joy for a moment. And I think that that is one of the reasons for the modern malaise is how much energy we are putting into denying people the space to do this sort of stuff. We need to do it. Like it's obviously we always have done this Therefore, It's like the next level up from breathing and sleeping and eating is yeah. spend a ridiculous amount of time making something because you think that it's beautiful and it yeah and it brings a little bit of joy yeah so that is i, th I think it's perfectly reasonable that they could be art objects yeah but that i think is it's not also how... reasonable that they could just be toys that someone could yeah. spend like 36 hours whittling away at an antler to make a doll for their kid yeah um, the main argument against them not necessarily big toys is that they do tend to be found in clumps. Quite a lot of them are found in, in groups, which mm. archaeologists like to interpret as them being in some kind of specific spiritual space. But there is, again, this is interpretation. Like, everything that we have before writing was invented <laughs> is an object that you have to look at and go, what do you reckon it is? And every single person that looks at it can come up with a different interpretation. Yeah. I mean, this also holds true for some forms of writing, right? Like, because you yeah. have to try and figure out what the purpose of that writing was and who is the audience was. Is this not a joke? Or like the classic, exactly. like the oldest joke ever written is the Sumerian joke about a yeah. dog that nobody knows what the hell it means, but it's definitely in the context, um, written down in the context of a joke. Mm -hmm. And the joke just goes, a dog walks into the bar and says, I cannot see a thing. I'll open this one. <laughs> and absolutely nobody has a clue what it means. It could mean, obviously, Sumerians found this funny enough to write it down. Yeah. And it is like the oldest existing right, written down joke. And it, the because the context is completely lost. <laughs> 
we have no <laughs> we clue what, what is funny about it what is opening why is it is it funny that the dog is talking is it funny that the dog is in a bar is it why is it dark and like no idea what the hell is going on there <laughs> so even with writing we're lost and without writing we're just looking at objects and hoping yeah and yeah. we're bringing out very much bringing our own biases to it it is all historical uh, interpretations archaeological interpretations are like all at least part projection sometimes mostly projection yeah often um, mostly projection i mean all history is mostly projection i would say as yeah. a historian my favorite thing is being like well that's interesting that you thought that about Taz- what tacitus means here but i think something different uh-huh. <laughs> i really think that is the key to like societal psychological health is like learning to be comfortable with the fact that we do not know what the truth is ever like there is everything is subjective there are like millions of different interpretations of everything everything is at a context that is too vast for us to comprehend mm-hmm. and we have scraps of evidence yeah that's that's and we just need to like chill in that space yeah and and stop being so obsessed with understanding everything perfectly and knowing what the right answer yeah, is i think because... rightness is something that we could probably bin off just yeah. before we started recording this we were talking about oppenheimer and varying responses to it <laughs> and yeah like how infuriating it can be to be like i without giving away anyone's thoughts about anything because again I've not seen that either yet but like I really love this thing and everybody hates it or I really hate this thing and everybody loves it yeah and to feel like there is some kind of rightness to your feelings about it when really it's art and it's there is no right or wrong response to it yeah I mean that isn't gonna stop me staring at all of my friends letterbox reviews and asking (laughs) if we were watching the same film (laughs) (laughs) exactly but your all of our brains and all of our little neural pathways are different so (laughs) the information gets around our brain in different ways and so we probably do literally see kind of different things yeah yeah of course we do of course we do um yeah but okay so moving through the periods of history back mm-hmm. to matriarchies what you get is then people looking for evidence of specific matriarchal societies which may have survived mm-hmm. and coming into the 19th century you get lots of people writing grand theory books but also kind of specific books about places and cultures that they think are matriarchal or were matriarchal once upon a time the kind of big inventor of this period Robert Graves actually wrote one of these books, which Mm -hmm. I did not know and found delightful. (laughs) One of his many talents was also launching himself into prehistoric history. He wrote a book called (laughs) The White Goddess about this idea of a kind of prehistoric mother goddess in European culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But the main proponent of this this phase was a woman called Maria Gimbutas. I do not know that I'm pronouncing that right, but that's what I'm going with. Um, Who's a Lithuanian archaeologist and anthropologist who developed what is now called mytho-archaeology, which is looking at lots of myths and delving into them archaeologically. Sure. So mining them for evidence that we can construct some sort of picture of real history exactly and she wrote uh, a lot of books and a lot of uh, articles about her various theories about the what she called old european culture 
which she believes originated on the step, the, mm-hmm. the, the Polish step, and which she then kind of expands out through all of Europe, which is called the Kurgan hypothesis. It's linked to the study of proto-Indo-Europeans and these kind of things. And she thinks that these were matriarchal societies. So she has a trilogy of books called The Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe, The Language of the Goddess and The Civilization of the Goddess. Mm -hmm. And these are hugely impactful in making the argument that all of Europe was matriarchal prior to the creation of Bronze Age European patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the societies which particularly gets focused on is the wonderful world of Bronze Age Crete. (laughs) (laughs) There there will be a a great title for a book about Crete. (laughs) (laughs) The wonderful world of Bronze Age Crete. Actually rolls off tongue very nicely. It does. I suspect that there is a book uh, about that. There is Hmm. one which is the most recent one that I could find, uh, which is called Matriarchy in the Bronze Age Crete, a perspective from archaeomythology and modern matriarchal studies by Joan Marie Quichon. It is an open access book, which I appreciate, and is based on her PhD thesis. Or in fact, I'm 97% sure it's just her PhD thesis with no changes (laughs) because it is structured like a PhD thesis. (laughs) Not a book. I really understand the impulse to not want to reread anything you've written in order to rewrite it as something different. I agree. And she was not willing to change a word. So (laughs) Bronze Age Crete, otherwise known as Minoan Crete, which is kind of the older name for it, is the island of Crete is around about the period of 1700-ish BCE. Mm-hmm. So a big old leap away from the Venus statues of 35,000 BC. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting culture in that it, we have a lot of archaeology and a lot of really well-preserved archaeology. And a lot of that archaeology is clearly like, you know, it's art, it's sculpture, it's buildings, like entire settlements of like proto cities Mm -hmm. based around palaces and gold and you know this is a clearly a very successful rich glorious culture that there's no writing about yeah sure we have no writing we have no readable inscriptions even we have basically nothing that can contextualize it Mm. these are the people who are uh, they're called minoan because of some different things they write in linear a which is we don't really know it's all very complicated (laughs) but they are really we know that they existed we know that they were very very rich we know that they were spectacularly important in the mediterranean and had contact with egypt and sumeria and all of these other places Mm -hmm. and then they disappeared sure and left this behind but no writing about them which is very difficult <laughs> yeah so they are ripe for interpretation which everyone loves yes most importantly there are lots and lots and lots of women in the art of of minoan mm-hmm. crete lots of women we see them very often in positions of power like very clearly positions of power 
there are some very famous statues of them as of goddesses. There's a great snake goddess called the Mother of the Mountain. Mm-hmm. And in the... They proceeded to doing lots of jobs as well, but often women are clothed and men are naked. Interesting. In the art, which is unusual. Yeah. And they are very often in positions of power over men. There are it's not to say that there are not men who are in positions of power and men doing jobs, but there is an unusual amount of art that depicts female deities, female officials, people doing things. And as a result, this has very much been shown as evidence for this being a matriarchal space. Mm-hmm. Because it has a primary goddess because it has women in positions of power and because it has women in in positions of at least equality yeah with men and this is where we get a brand new definition of matriarchy mm-hmm. which is fun <laughs> because for a very long time the idea and in all of virtually everything that we have been talking about so far the idea is that matriarchy is the opposite of patriarchy so patriarchy is a system whereby women are oppressed. So matriarchy must be a system where men are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And if you read science fiction as much as I do, you will have read lots of books where um, you find systems like the Amazons where men are enslaved, men are treated as women are. Yeah. And or like just a very extreme version of how women are treated. Farmed for their seed and then dismissed. Or, exactly. Yeah. And the that is how matriarchy was conceptualized for really up until like the late 1970s or even later than that. And it's still being kind of reconceptualized now. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, a woman called Heide Guttner Abendroth who is a German, originally a philosopher, who has then moved into anthropology, developed an entirely new definition of matriarchy and called it modern matriarchal studies. She is the mother of modern matriarchal (laughs) studies. It exists pretty much entirely because of her. It comes out of a book called When God Was a Woman, but she has worked very hard to try to turn matriarchy into a system that can be conceptualized properly mm-hmm. and then tested. Okay. Whether she is successful in testing that is, I don't know. But she has a very clear idea and is a very idealistic and a utopian idea of what a matriarchy is. And this is how they are able to say that societies where men are clearly not being oppressed are matriarchies Mm -hmm. because matriarchy no longer technically has to mean a system where men are oppressed because it doesn't have to be dominant. It is a system where there is gender equality. Mm -hmm. So it's the absence of the patriarchy. It is the absence of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. She has then extended that idea into talking about the economy, talking about society and talking about culture more generally. So she basically, I'm like there is, she has entire books outlining this, several of them, but in very briefly, you have a balanced gift-based economy of mutuality. So you don't mm-hmm. have a capitalist system. It has to be in her conception, a, a system that is based on mutuality, largely on gifts rather than on purchasing and owning of property. Mm-hmm. You have non-hierarchical matrilineal kinship. 
<laughs> so everything goes through the woman, but you don't have kind of hierarchies of women necessarily. <laughs> Although every single society that she describes as being matriarchy clearly has a hierarchy. <laughs> but an ideal world, you don't have uh, have that. I'd also say she's very keen, and all of these are very keen on the idea that matriarchy as is implied in the name, venerates motherhood as the core of being a woman. Uh And that within any matriarchal system or within any system, it is being a mother which makes you a woman or makes you a woman worthy of status. And it is motherhood and fertility which are the core aspects of womanhood, which is fun because that debars me and you from being women. It's fine. Being a woman sucks anyway. Yeah. And anyone who... So it is very keen that, like, you gain status through motherhood. You gain veneration through motherhood. In a lot of the societies that she describes, it is mothering and nurturing, which um, get you status um, within clans. And there is nothing to... to womanhood within these matriarchal theories that is not motherhood which i find very depressing uh-huh. <laughs> and extremely reductive uh-huh. and not that gender equal really or idealistic because any society where mine or any other woman woman's womanhood and ability to to have status and power is defined entirely by whether i have a womb and what it's doing yeah. is not what I want to be a part of. (laughs) No, absolutely not. That doesn't seem utopian to me at at all. all. And I think it is, I mean, I think for me, a utopian society is based around one that has equal respect for all roles in a certain society, whatever they are. And like that recognizes that everyone has something to contribute and that their, their value isn't determined by how much they're adhering to your rules of what contributions you think are most valid. Yeah. yeah. And you see this, it comes up a lot in like the reason that this second wave feminism from which this is, this stuff comes out of is so associated with TERFs today is mm-hmm. that it is a mother goddess. That is the feminine divine. Yeah. Um, it is fertility, which, and it is very biologically deterministic and very much associated with this idea of like moon goddesses that have babies it is so much more closely to the patriarchal attitude to matriarchy's right that it is about earthy pre-intellectual connections to yeah your body they are very Um, much connected which is very that is very depressing. Yeah, yeah. So there's so we have the matrilineal kinship. Then number three, we have consensus based politics, which is politics, which is non where you people come together in groups to discuss what's going on. Um, a culture of the feminine divine, which is the Earth Mother stuff, and a culture where there is gender equality. She then goes on through several books to describe modern day cultures, which she considers to be matriarchal and which i'm not going to talk about too much because they're modern and then we're getting kind of wading into stuff that's i is outside of my area (laughs) but big ones which come up a lot are the musuo in china Mm -hmm. who she spent time with the minangkawa 
Kabai in Indonesia, the Asante Empire in Ghana, and the Iroquois in America. <laughs> All of whom are cultures that are described by anthropologists as being matriarchal in some way. And having read descriptions of all of them, they have certain things in common, mostly which is that they are clan-based. Uh-huh. So society is organized around large familial groups, which are clans which are matrilineal and led by mothers. Mm-hmm. That they are matrilocal, which means that children belong to and live with the mothers mm-hmm. and inherit through the mother's line. But you children live with their mother, not with their father. And if there are marriages, then the men go to the women, the women don't go to the men. Mm-hmm. Lots of them have what's called visitor marriage, which is where men do not live with their wives, but they live with their mothers and then they visit their wives. Okay. But they eat, only eat with their mothers. Interesting. And is they have serial monogamy, so those marriages are not kind of religiously bound or anything. You can end them at any time both parties mm-hmm. can end them and then the man has to leave and then the women can pick another man basically mm-hmm. yeah and they often have mutual clan intermarriage and this gave the like gave me minor hives because you end up with lots of cousins marrying cousins <laughs> but where like the men of one clan will marry the women of another clan okay and very often you then have representatives who are often men who go to a kind of bigger meetings where decisions are made about clans as a whole and things like that um, mm-hmm. And you can read more about all of them. But reading about them, what I found very much was that she was like describing without evidence <laughs> these cultures mm-hmm. and saying, oh, you know, there is a clan mother and the clan mother is elected because she is the most nurturing. And when you say, what does that mean? You say, they say, you just know. And the clan mother goes to X, Y, and Z. And like a lot of very authoritative description of what is going on and that the women lead with natural authority rather than power and the youngest daughter will inherit all the property and da, 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 da. It just there it just feels a little colonial doesn't it <laughs> it's enormously colonial and it, you when you get to the bottom you often find that what she's describing is culture as it was described to anthropologists in 1860 And that now when you go, you find a very different situation. And so I found Uh an an article from last year about the Asante. So the Asante began as six clans in Ghana who kind of fled the the British Empire and joined together to form the Asante Empire and Uh kind of created a culture from scratch. This is in Ghana. Yeah. So directly in response to colonization. But the the descriptions of it, which are in the article I read directly taken from the Ghana Abendroth's books are that you have a king and queen mother who are joint co-rulers. You have female political leadership. There is a matrilineal system of inheritance whereby women are control the land and can only give it to women, but they are not allowed to sell it because... It is considered to be property of the family or of the clan, not to, uh, and to deity, to be divine in some way, not an object. So to, so to be an owner of land is more to be the custodian for that exactly. period. Right. Um, and so you're caring for it, not exploiting it. Mm-hmm. Um, that wives and children don't, don't wreck and like, inherit from one another, not from men. 
but then on all of this kind of described outside like without talking to anyone from the culture sounds like a matrilineal paradise Mm. where everything is delightful. But then they actually went and talked to people (laughs) there (laughs) and basically talked to them about their lives. And this is now in 2022. This work was done in 2020 and looked to see how modernization and colonialization and the kind of impact of the enforced impact of capitalistic agriculture had changed things and what they found was that although the structures exist whereby women inherit from women it is men that actually do the controlling okay so although it's not written down in law that like if you were to have their law code you would see women inherit from women and that's passed down through the matrilineal line and but when you go and talk to them, they're like, oh, yes, men are the head of the household. And so he makes all the decisions. Right. And they have like they list all of these sayings that people have and things that they say to them when they talk to them about the actual roles of men and women. And they say the glory of woman lies in the marriage and no one likes an argumentative woman. And the man is the head of the family and like at the actual level of not necessarily written down but but social social norms, norms and yeah are that men do the controlling and you what they have informally is a patriarchal system it just yeah. doesn't look like it and it there is you would have to do a lot of research to understand how much of this is a response to the fact that when for example anthropologists turn up in these places they only talk to the men and if men are the only way through which you can contact the enormously powerful empire that is destroying you then that gives men power over women or how much of this is to do with the fact that they have enforced capitalistic agriculture on the way that they use the land yeah and that has enforced new norms and how much is it that it was always like this And how much is it the influence of a patriarchal capitalist society that took over the world? Exactly. Mm. And you would have to investigate that for one million years. But (laughs) a lot of what the modern matriarchal people do is not that. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes this whole world very, very complicated. And Mm. I'm going to briefly mention Cynthia Eller, who is the kind of main critic of this this new matriarchal, modern matriarchal studies, it's called, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called The Myth of Matriarchal Prehistory, Why an Invented Past Will Not Give Women a Future, where mm-hmm. she is, she does not hold back uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the whole kind of post computus modern matriarchal theory, because it wishful thinking and a vacuous myth. Outstanding. holds women within kind of patriarchal ideas of what a woman is that is basically wildly unhelpful. (laughs) (laughs) And she, like, then you get into, like, big arguments about uh, where academics are arguing with one another about, no, you have misinterpreted this. No, you have misinterpreted that. But the, the kind of general answer, I suppose, to the question is that the world before what we now know as patriarchy was different but we do not really know how much and it kind of depends (laughs) on how you whether you want to define matriarchy if you want to define matriarchy as a place where men are dominated and oppressed by women and where there is no care for like the father's line and no worry for father's inheritance rights and things like that then that has as far as we can tell has never existed yeah and no one has ever managed to find a system 
where that exists. But if you want to redefine matriarchy as a space which is more gender equal, where women can be venerated, where there can be a feminine divine, then please remove all of this nonsense about motherhood about it. But maybe you can yeah. find those. You can find spaces where women ha- are, have, have not been treated in the way that they are in Greece and Rome, for example, which is the thing that you are that most people are responding to. They are directly responding to classical Greece and Rome. Yeah, because everyone got obsessed with them in the Enlightenment and we just cannot break free. <laughs> which I'm fine with. Like, eh. <laughs> God, they're fascinating. <laughs> Not in the way that these people think they are, which is like the height of civilization, but... (laughs) But as messy bitches who live for drama. Messy bitches who live for drama, as we all are. Yeah. So, yeah, the answer is it's complicated. Isn't that fun? (laughs) I found it one of those things that it's like, when you think about it, there is a logic there that you've never considered. Like, a matriarchy is a system where men are oppressed. Yeah, there is no reason for that to exist. No. You know? Because the oppression of women arises out of a fear of not being the father of your own children. That's yeah, it's like, a fear it's kinda... of expending resources on something you didn't biologically contribute to. Yeah, it 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 makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, mm. yeah. So that's matriarchies and the wonderful, complicated world thereof. Mm-hmm. Next time we're going to be talking about something a bit smaller. Question comes from Amanda Hendrickson, who is a costumier who makes costumes for debutante balls in texas and she said what is the history of debutantes Uh, that is going to be a fun one which is going to be a fun one and uh, it's not going to cover like a million years of human history (laughs) 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 which will give my little brain a rest and also we get to look at some pretty dresses which is always a fun time which is always a fun time until next time you can find us you can support us you can buy us a coffee you can follow our instagram you can follow all of our things on historyofsexy.com mm-hmm. you can send us a question there as well if you have a question that you would like us to answer we appreciate everybody and until next time bye janina bye, bye.